Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you're listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net, episode 103, Corpus Hermeticum 1, The Poimandres. How to discuss the theoretical Hermetica when we don't even know for sure if they represent a single tradition in antiquity, or if they do, how unified the thought in that tradition was? Well, in upcoming episodes, we shall speak with some specialists who know this material much better than we do, and we'll see how they attempt to unify these texts as a single tradition. So for our part here at Schwepp HQ, we're going to pursue the less brave, but perhaps equally useful course of action, and just talk about some of the most striking, or interesting to us, hermetic texts from antiquity. And the most interesting hermetic text from antiquity has got to be Corpus Hermeticum I, a.k.a. the Poimandres. To give this work its title as it appears in the manuscript tradition, this treatise is Of Hermes Poimandres, and readers can insert the word logos at the beginning if they want, so giving discourse of Hermes Poimandres. Now two things here. Firstly, where does Hermes fit into this text? And secondly, who or what is a Poimandres? So Hermes. As with many theoretical Hermetica, the Poimandres contains a dialogue between teacher and disciple. In this case, the teacher figure is named in the text. This is Poimandres, the noose of power. We'll get to noose in a minute. But the disciple figure is not named, except in the title, where we learn that he is Hermes. Ancient titles, as we know, should not be considered titles in the modern sense. They shouldn't be considered part of the text. And we have no reason to assume that this hermetic author who wrote this text wrote anything at the beginning of the piece. And the title or description might have been added by a later scribe as a way of helping readers of a corpus of multiple hermetica to navigate the corpus. Track listings, if you will. But for an album by some avant-garde Japanese noise band who release everything without proper titles. So you have to sort of make something up when you're doing a track listing. However, titles aside, we think that the visionary interlocutor disciple is Hermes Trismegistus, and none other. This becomes clear on internal evidence at the end of the Poimandres, as we shall see. Whoever this disciple is, after he's had all the amazing visions in the text, he's sent out into the world to teach the wisdom of Poimandres, and so he becomes a teacher himself. This has probably got to be none other than Hermes, right? The chief teacher figure in the Hermetic Dramatis Personae. We also have a piece of evidence from another treatise, Corpus Hermeticum 13, where at section 15, Hermes mentions the Ogdoad revealed by Poimandres. So he mentions him by name. And at section 19, he is addressing God and says, The shepherd of your word, Logos, is Nous. Now, a shepherd in Greek is a poimen, so this would seem to be a punning reference to, or perhaps an esoteric etymology of, poimandres. So all in all, we can assume that Hermes is the visionary in the poimandres. Now, what about the name poimandres? It's a weird one, and we've just listed all of its appearances in the Hermetica. It, it's not a common thing, it just appears in this tractate and Corpus Medicum 13. Well, we've just seen the poimen thing, and this is one popular theory as to where the name Poimandres comes from. It's a contraction of poimen and aner, meaning man, so something like shepherd of men. 
Though, as Peter Kingsley has noted, this doesn't really work, as that's not how Greek names were constructed. We would have, in that case, poimandros or poimanor or something like that. We do have a reference in the great Zosimus of Panopolis, the 4th century alchemist, to poimenandra, which would be the accusative of poimenaner, which does literally mean um, shepherd, man. But just because Zosimus reads the name that way, because this is almost certainly a reference to the hermetic Poimandres figure, that doesn't mean that it was originally etymologically from these Greek words. It just means Zosimus thinks it is. There's also a school of thought which wants to make links between the Poimandres, the text, and the second century Christian apocalypse, the shepherd of Hermas, which does indeed bear some intriguing similarities to the vision which opens the Poimandres, which we'll be getting to in a minute. And obviously it has a shepherd theme, as you can guess from its title could be. There's also a persistent line of argument that the name comes from the Egyptian language with Paimenenre, which I'm definitely mispronouncing, the knowledge of Re, that would be the sun god, or some variant thereof being the most common proposition for the etymology of this word. If the Greek nous is indeed translating the Egyptian eime, this etymology could lead us into Egyptian thought worlds and perhaps inspire us to look at even very ancient Egyptian ideas in a Greek guise here. Could be. See the bibliography to this episode for articles covering all these possibilities and more. The fact is, Poimandris' name is a real puzzle and the Schwepp is Poimandris agnostic. But we are more interested here in what Poimandris does. And to get at that, let's have a look at the text. Quick summary of the Hermetic Poimandris. This text is the most detailed and informative text in the Corpus Hermeticum, containing everything from cosmology to spiritual practices and much more. It's thought by many scholars to be the oldest hermetic text. Um, this is not provable, it's just kind of seems like it possibly is. It's even been suggested by a minority that we can't, and we can't really know for sure if this is right or wrong because it's not provable, but it's been suggested that the text precedes the hermetic genre altogether. That is, Hermes as interlocutor has been added later by whoever did the title, so as to bring the text within the fold of the developing hermetic genre. And that could have also involved some rewriting. We'll probably never know. But the treatise as we have it, it's an apocalypse. That is, it fits all the basic characteristics of the now classic definition of apocalyptic literature given by John Collins in the 1979 issue of Semea and please see episode 50 of the podcast for an interview with that very John Collins. We have a guided tour of the secrets of the divine world, and we have a guide. These are the two most important um, kind of characteristics of apocalypse that um, we certainly find in spades in the Poimandres. In this case, the guide is Poimandres. The frame narrative of the treatise is that this is a vision in which Hermes encounters Poimandres, who teaches him all that he desires to know. And then, having learned all the mysteries, Hermes will then, in a short coda at the end of the text, go out into the world to teach mankind what he has learned, the way of salvation through gnosis and noesis. So here's the intro, and we shall be quoting Copenhaver's translation throughout this episode, occasionally interpolating a Greek word from the manuscript when it's helpful. Quote, Once, when thought came to me of the things that are, and my thinking soared on high, and my bodily senses were restrained, like someone heavy with sleep, from too much eating or toil of the body, 
An enormous being, completely unbounded in size, seemed to appear to me and call my name and say to me, What do you want to hear and see? What do you want to learn and know from your understanding? Who are you? I asked. I am Poimandres, he said, mind of sovereignty. I know what you want, and I'm with you everywhere. Now, we know that it's quite common for true visions to appear to ancients in dreams. And we've seen in episode 54, for example, that a dream narrative is a favorite framing for Jewish apocalypse. Not all apocalypses are dreams, but many of them are. Then we also have in Plato's myth of Ur, arguably our earliest Greek apocalypse, an out-of-body experience based on a near-death state, picked up on by Plutarch in one of his apocalyptic afterlife myths, whereas in another of Plutarch's out-of-body journeys, it's um, a dream in the sanctuary of Trophonius. See episode 69 of the podcast for these Plutarchian apocalypses. There are lots of other intriguing parallels here, but note what is unique about this visionary framing. Hermes is not asleep. He's separated from his bodily senses like someone in a deep sleep, but he's seemingly awake or in some other odd state of consciousness. Please see episode 7 of the podcast where we discuss dreams in Western esotericism generally. The background here may go all the way back to the Hippocratic writing on regimen, where we learn that dreams function because when the body is asleep, the soul becomes free from the body. And we're not implying that the Hermetic author has read Hippocrates necessarily. It's just that Hippocrates is a witness to a general way of thinking about sleep and dreams, separation of the soul from the body. But what's unique about the Poimandres frame in ancient literature, as far as I know, it's unmistakably describing something like a trance state or other visionary or hallucinatory, if you prefer, state, wherein quite extraordinary visions, we'll get to those in a moment, are appearing before the open eyes of the visionary. The guy's not asleep. It's just like he's asleep. He's brought in sleep and dreaming as a comparison, in fact, but specifically said he's not asleep. As we shall see, separation from the body is very important in the text that follows. Incidentally, we do have a very strong tradition from Egypt of people seeing gods face to face in a normal waking state of mind. These are the rituals of apparition, which we find in some of the Greek magical papyri. So the account here may also be riffing on the cultural fact that for Egyptians, seeing a god with your actual physical eyes and having a chat with him and stuff like that was a thing. Anyway, this enormous being, actually a unmeasurably ginormous, hypermegathe metro aperioristo, I think ginormous is the only way to translate hypermegathe, even though it lowers the tone a bit, this ginormous being is the noose of power. Now, this is not power as in dunamis, as in sort of electrical power. This is power as in authority, sovereignty, lordship. This term, authentia, incidentally, it doesn't really occur before the Christian era. So it's a new term, perhaps to be associated with new religious ideas arising in the Roman Empire in the first centuries. So Poimandres is the noose tes authentias, the noose of sovereignty. Noose is, as we've seen in the podcast, the main location among Middle Platonists for the supreme reality. The supreme god is a noose, a mind or hypermind, some kind of form of intelligence that transcends normal intelligence. Often this divine noose will contain Plato's forms. It will be the world of forms. As we saw in Philo, whose demiurgic noose, aka the Logos, is the world of forms. 
and which we shall see argued strongly by Plotinus. Now, among certain thinkers, such as Numenius, or the author of the Chaldean Oracles, or Philo, aspects of transcendence apply to the highest noose, so that it is some kind of noose which is beyond noose, or something along those lines, different in each of these authors we're mentioning, but the structure of a transcendent noose, which is beyond even the forms, is in common here. We might have something similar in some of the Hermetica, but this is unclear in the Poimandres, as we shall see. So God is definitely a noose, but as to where the forms might be, if there are forms, we don't really hear about them in the Poimandres. As for the enormous extent of Poimandres, his hugeness, we are reminded of uh, 2 Enoch 1, 3-6, or of the angel Jibril standing astride the horizon in the accounts of the Prophet Muhammad's first reception of the Qur'an in the Sirah literature, and of many other sources. When divine guides appear in apocalyptic literature, they often are exceedingly huge. One more thing, on modes of epistemology in the Poimandres. Poimandres asks Hermes, what do you want to hear and see? What do you want to learn and know from your understanding? In Copenhaver's translation. So hear and see are pretty straightforward here, but we should be aware that theasasthai is the verb for seeing which is regularly used by Platonists to describe the vision of the noetic realm, a non-bodily vision, a kind of direct vision, and a term which also has, of course, resonances from mystery cult, as we've mentioned earlier in the podcast, to do with unveiling of the mystery secrets, the mystic secrets, at the culmination of initiation. As for what do you want to learn and know from your understanding, Copenhaver is translating the untranslatable noesas mathen kai more literally translated, having had noesis, what do you wish to learn and know, or learn and be familiar with, for gignosko. Gignosko is the verb which we find uh, at the root of the word gnosis, which is a faculty with great significance in some of the Hermetica as a privileged and even salvific form of knowledge. So, Poimandres is asking Hermes what he wants to learn and be familiar with once he has already had the noesis. Now, taking on board what Christian Wildberg said in our interview with him, that the concepts in the Hermetica might not be the familiar Middle Platonist ideas we've come to read them as, we might need to be very careful here. But on the reading natural to a student of philosophy, this noesis that Poimandres is talking about will be something like an unmediated eternal or timeless encounter with things in themselves. The onta, the, um, the things that really exist that are mentioned in the very first line of this text, with primal reality. Whether this kind of world of forms-ish reading of noose is what is meant by the text is unclear to me. I'm just going to leave it open. But the hermetic noetic realm has at least this in common with the middle platonist noetic realm. It is the true reality which precedes this cosmic reality in which we have bodies and senses and all the rest of it. And we'll see that in the text as, as we get through it. It can be noetized, this realm, and it's either where Poimandres is from, or it is Poimandres. Poimandres is the noose. Also, as with many Platonists, this noetic realm is described in terms of life and light in the text. So we don't get forms 
in the Poimandris, but we do get life and light again and again. That's what nous is. So I feel the need to bracket nous and noesis, at least for now in our text, because I don't want to impose my own ideas of what the author means by it, coming as I do from a, a rather um, philosophic reading of, of this material. And I don't want to do what Festugier does and kind of reduce this to a bastardized Greek philosophy, because I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not what's going on here. Note, though, that nous is an absolutely crucial concept across the spectrum of theoretical hermetica, so you need to come to some idea of what it means at some point in order to read these texts. Nous is central to, to the hermetica, to the corpus as a whole. At any rate, Poimandres, the nous, then changes his form in some unspecified way, and suddenly Hermes has a vision. He sees a universal light and comes to love it. This, as we learn later, is the noose himself, the original existent form from which all things come. So Hermes here is actually seeing the origin of reality in a vision. Having seen this light, he then sees a darkness appear. It's unclear from where. And the darkness sort of solidifies, or rather becomes a watery nature, which is sort of seething and smoking and generally just very uncanny. And the description of it is kind of gives you goosebumps. Then a cry is heard, like the voice of light coming out of that darkness. Okay, so we often get the emendation voice of fire here, but the manuscripts say voice of light. So either the emendations are right, and the text originally said voice of fire, since after all, the darkness so far has seemed to be very separate from the light, the noetic light, so we wouldn't expect the voice of the light to be coming out of the darkness, or... Somehow the light is present in the darkness, which might mean that the darkness itself has a noetic origin, is from the light in some mysterious way. Or maybe something totally different and more Egyptian is going on here, also a possibility. Then a holy word, logos hagios. A word is a bad translation here. This is a holy discourse or a holy logos. Let's just leave it at logos because it can also mean a kind of like mental faculty. Appears upon the watery nature. So everyone who reads this passage sees an echo of, quote, and the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, which is from Genesis 1-2. But that being said, no one can agree as to what we should make of this fact, that there is a similarity here. So we just move on. Now, this holy logos acts upon the dark waterish mass to separate it out into the four elements, the four classical elements and so it's clear that these four elements were all present in the waterish mass in some kind of primal, undifferentiated state. And meanwhile, the logos is then described as pneumaticon, made of spirit or spiritual pneuma. So we actually have five elements here in total. Fire, earth, air, water, pneuma, which has led everyone to look at stoic physics as an ingredient in what is going on here. See episode 45 of the podcast for some stoic physics. Thus ends the first vision. The Poimandres asks Hermes if he understands what he's seen, and Hermes says, Then Poimandres explains, I am the light you saw, Nous, your god, he said, who existed before the watery nature that appeared out of darkness. The light-giving Logos, who comes from the Nous, is the son of God. So here we go. Poimandres is the universal light. Seemingly, he's meant to be the supreme god. The light-giving Logos, which divided up all the elements and sort of set physical reality on its first foundations, is the son of 
Poimandres, son of the Noose. Okay, obviously people have seen some Johannine Christian influence on this passage with all the talk of Logos and so on. But we should also remember Philo of Alexandria, who back in the first century was talking about a Logos, which was the demiurgic creator of the cosmos and also sometimes called son of God. So Egyptian Jewish influence is at least as good a suggestion for the origin of this idea in the Hermetica as Christianity is. And I have no problem either calling this straight Egyptian. The Sia of Re, for example, is regularly called in inscriptions the son of Re and pictured standing next to Re. And the Sia is something like Re's intelligence or mind or wisdom personified. So Logos might be a natural translation into Greek of Sia, for example. But I should say, I also suspect in the text here a layering of different strands of myth. I could absolutely be wrong, but I'm just saying, in this primal creation, we have Poimandris Nous, and he has a son, the Logos, which then orders the primal chaos. Okay, but in the very next section, we're going to get a demiurgic Nous, who also comes from the Father, who creates the basic structure of the universe. In the text, these are presented as different entities, or at least it's not made clear that they're meant to be the same, but that seems unnecessary somehow. Couldn't this Logos just be the same guy as the demiurgic Nous? I suspect, but this is just a gut feeling, I emphasize, that what we have here is two different accounts of creation, which at some point were patched together. The first one, a Nous Logos ordering out of chaos scene, and the second one, more a take on Plato's Timaeus myth. Please feel free to chuck that in the bin if you don't like it. That's just my feeling about this text. It reads like it's been put together a bit like uh, the book of Genesis, in fact. Now, a crucial passage arrives whereby these hypercosmic principles, the nous and the logos, are attributed to the human microcosm. Quote, that, this is Poimandre speaking, that in you, which sees and hears, is the logos of the Lord, but your nous is God the Father. They are not divided from one another, for their union is life. Okay, we could spend a whole episode talking about just that. We'll just content ourselves with pointing out that Hermes, the student, is now learning that the Poimandres himself and this spiritual logos, which ordered the elements at the beginning of the cosmic reality, are both faculties within himself. Not bad. End of first vision. Poimandres says, but noetize the light and learn about it. And then he stares into Hermes's eyes. Hermes freaks out, but then sees a second vision unfold to him. This time, one of an infinite cosmos full of the light, of powers beyond number. These would seem to be the stars. Poimandres then explains the next step in cosmogony. How you get from the primordial elements to the cosmos as we know it. Quote, The noose who is God, being androgyne, and existing as life and light, by speaking, gave birth to a second noose, a craftsman, that's demiurgos in Greek, who as god of fire and pneuma crafted seven governors. They encompass the sensible world in circles, and their governance is called fate. End of quote. Boom. If you are unfamiliar with the creation account in Plato's Timaeus, immediately pause this episode, go to episode 27, and then come back. If you are familiar with the Timaeus, the most important book in the Western canon, we can continue. We note crucial elements of Plato's account here. 
but they're also different. The fire and pneuma is new, that the, the demiurge is a fire and pneuma sort of god. The demiurge as a noose is not explicit in Plato's account, but it's a normal option among Platonists. But the fire and pneuma would seem to be either a Stoic influence, as some people think, or just some more Egyptian stuff translated into Greek. And the seven governors, who are of course the planets of Hellenistic astronomy astrology, generating fate is an idea unfamiliar to Plato, but very much in the air in the Roman Empire, as we've seen in the podcast. And here different scholars attribute this idea of planetary fate to different sources. Perhaps the Hermes text of early astrology, perhaps late Stoicism, perhaps even the late Stoicism of Posidonius. There's Aristotle in the mix, of course. We're not here to answer those questions. The fact is, in later antiquity, the idea that the stars generate fate, the nexus of causes which determines everything which occurs in the sublunary cosmos, is just a very common belief, as we've seen in the course of the podcast. The hermetic adept, as we shall see, is concerned to escape from fate. Again, a common idea in late antique philosophy. Now, these governors, and incidentally, they are dioiketas. A dioiketes was, in the Egyptian political context, the chief financial administrator of Egypt, the, the chief Roman finance guy in the province. So basically, it's a governor of some kind. So if we're expecting to find archontes, archons here, rulers, we are disappointed. The vocabulary seems to be much more either bureaucratic or perhaps astrological than Gnostic in its inspiration. In Gnosticism, of course, putting that word in quotes as always, we do find archontes associated with the planets. They're the rulers, and they're usually a bit nastier than the uh, governors that we've seen in this hermetic text. Though wait, because they get a little nastier near the end. Indeed, although fate is something to be escaped from for the her hermetic adept, as we shall see, these seven governors are not depicted here as malevolent, unlike in many a Christian demiurgic text. So, from the creation of the seven governors, we move on to the creation of the primal human. The noose gives birth to a child whom he loves. He created the demiurge by speaking, we remember, but this child he just somehow gives birth to, so it's very different. This child is like his father. So this is the anthropos, the human being. And this primordial human is actually the brother-sister of the demiurge, because like his father, he's androgyne, having both sexes. The anthropos sees what the demiurge has created and wants to do some demiurgy of his own, which his father says is fine. So he gets divine permission and enters into the demiurgically created cosmos. Now, presumably here he's in the Ogduad. And then the governors too, the planets, or the planetary daimones, they love the, this human being as well. And each gives him, quote, a share of his own order, end quote. So once he's acquired the knowledge and nature of the governors, and we shall return to this in a bit, the Anthropos wants to enter into the cosmos and observe fate in action. So he's already in the cosmos, that's why I think he's probably in the Ogdoad, but now he has to penetrate through the actual spheres and get down to Earth. So not bad for a story of how humanity came about, right? You're basically the son of the highest god, the highest noose, and the brother of the guy who created the star gods. Now, when the Anthropos does break through the spheres, nature, Physis, who is feminine in gender, she sees him and falls in love with him because he has the nature of his father. So he's this, you know, 
ultimate truth and ultimate beauty. They embrace, she sort of wraps herself around him, her whole self, and they become lovers. They have sex, in fact. This is why humankind, we are told, is uniquely twofold of all the creatures on earth, having a divine, immortal part and a mortal body made through nature. Now dig. There's really a lot of good stuff to unpack in this passage, but let's leave that to Wouter Hanacharaf, whom we'll be talking to next time. We'll concentrate instead on how Poimandres ends this section of the vision, or ends this vision. Here we have some hermetic written esotericism. Quote, Poimandres said, This is the mystery that has been kept hidden until this very day. When nature made love with the man, she bore a wonder most wondrous. In him, he had the nature of the cosmic framework of the seven, who are made of fire and pneuma, as I told you. And without delay, nature at once gave birth to seven men, androgyne and exalted, whose natures were like those of the seven governors. So, this reference to a mysterion, which Copenhaver translates as mystery, not really doing justice to to kekrumenon mysterion, the, the hidden initiatory secret, and similar references in other Hermetica to Mysteria led the scholar Reitzenstein to promulgate the influential idea of a lese mysterium, a reading mystery or even a reading initiation. In the Corpus Hermeticum, if we read it as a religious document of some movement in antiquity, whatever that movement was like, we clearly have a strong textual component, right? So this was a religion of the book in a way. Whatever the ritual stuff that was going on aside from the readings, there was clearly a lot of reading. Now, earlier mysteria, the actual mystery cults as we know them, were based on a ritual of initiation unaccompanied by any written text, although there was often oral teaching in the form of a myth. So here we have, at least as it's presented in the text, just such a mythic teaching about the origins of mankind and how we got to be the sort of beings as that we are and so on, that you might have found in an ancient mystery cult, but given in written form. So it may be that, and this is Reitzenstein's reading and that of some other scholars, more or less, that the reading of this text was meant to deliver a kind of initiation. You know, and in a lot of the so-called Gnostic texts, the, the secrets that are given are described as the gnosis. So you need the, this gnosis to be saved from Hemarmene and from the archons and so on and so forth. And it seems like what the gnosis is, is really what's in the text. It's knowledge about how the universe came to be, how it is. So perhaps this text was presented to those on the hermetic path at a certain level of their development. Maybe it was actually intended to be a kind of secret, semi-secret text, but it somehow got out into the public domain. Or perhaps this kind of esoteric secrecy wasn't necessary. All that was needed was the reading and understanding of the Lese Mysterium. After all, if we compare this to the Gospels, they are full of secrets, references to secrets, in quotes. And these secrets are, of course, for the most part, just revealed in the Gospels themselves. Like, what's the secret? It's the secret is that I'm the Messiah, this sort of thing. But the idea is still that reading and accepting the gospel message will grant salvation to the reader. So these are public texts, indeed actively copied and spread texts, very, very actively spread, the, the gospels, and they're full of secrets which will save you. Of course, it's really Christ who's granting the salvation, but the knowledge aspect is important. The early Christian church definitely emphasizes read, 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 understand the scriptures, and so on. It may be that 
the repeated reference to silence which follows this passage we've just read is also significant. So Hermes says, quote, O Poimandres, now I have come into a great longing, and I yearn to hear, so do not digress. And Poimandres said, Be silent, I have not yet unfolded to you the first logos. As you see, I am silent, said I. So this repetition of the word, be silent, I am silent, certainly echoes mystic themes, even if it is just merely an echo. And we're going to talk more about hermetic silence in another episode. I think there may be more going on here, though, a kind of callback to the fact that this is a mystery, and the student, Hermes in the text, but of course the hermetist reading the text as well, is meant to keep these matters hidden, to be silent about them. So anyway, these seven androgyne humans who are somehow associated with the planets come to be from the love of the Anthropos and Fusis. And this occurs in a periodos, some kind of stellar cycle or world age. In the next cycle, these humans, and all the animals in fact, are split in two by the council of God. So God says, right, I'm going to have to divide everything up. See Plato's Symposium 189-93 to for an intriguing parallel text. And that's how we got male and female. So we have genders, but this is a good thing. It's part of God's plan. So that was another periodos. We've had two world ages. The world age of the seven androgyne sort of planetary proto-anthropoi, and then male and female have come into being. Then God speaks a holy logos, which is another piece, which reminds us a lot of Genesis, quote, Increase in increasing and multiply in multitude all you creatures and crafts works, and let him who is mindful recognize that he is immortal, that desire is the cause of death, and let him recognize all that exists. End of quotes. Now, craft works, of course, is a reference to demiurgy, not to the great German synthpop band. So all you creatures and products of the crafting done by the demiurge. Um, you have to recognize that you are immortal and that desire is the cause of death. Then providence, divine providence, using fate and the planets as her instrument, basically sets everything in the world to busily having sex. Life teems upon the earth, and here we are. Poimandre says, quote, The one who recognized himself attained the chosen good, but the one who loved the body that came from the error of desire goes on in darkness, errant, suffering sensibly the effects of death. End of quote. So endeth the cosmological teaching of Poimandres. Note how the quite positive take on sex and life and death has now become the error of desire. So sex has been equated with death. This poses problems, as you can imagine, for how we read the text as a whole. One of the major ways of categorizing the Hermetica, as we've discussed with Professor Copenhaver, is as either optimistic or pessimistic, right? But scholars have also had to admit that there are some texts, like the Poimandres, which are mixed. That is, they have a bit of both in them. So, we either need to posit conflicting worldviews within the same texts, not impossible, or find a way of nuancing the message so that the reality we live in here in the cosmos is both according to the divine will and good and coming from life and light and the news, and also can admit of the negative side of things, the error of desire. In the next episode, we'll speak to Wouter Hanukraf, who has some ideas on this. 
But I would just like to contextualize this problem more broadly in terms of late antique approaches to human life, because I don't think it is necessarily that much of a problem. As we saw in episode 80, our interview with Michael Williams, not all of the so-called Gnostic texts of late antiquity are really as world-hating as they've been made out to be. There's this cliche of Gnostics as world-haters, but it's not really borne out in the texts. Then on the other hand, we can take two very different Egyptian thinkers of later centuries, right? So this is now 3rd and 4th century, Plotinus and Zosimus of Panopolis, and see in their works that they both praise the sublunary order and also despise it, depending on the context in which they're writing. I think we can say for the Hermetic author, as for Plotinus, the world is good in that it's some kind of imperfect image of the noetic world, which really is perfect, but it's bad in that it falls short of the noetic world. So I'm not trying to import Platonist or indeed alchemical ideas into the Hermetica here. I'm just using some other authors as an example of how it's possible to take the mixed line toward the goodness of cosmic existence and to show that it's, it's okay to be mixed in late antiquity. And in fact, everyone was pretty mixed in their regard to these problems at the time. So again, it might not be as much of a problem as we think it is. Now, Hermes asks some pertinent questions with relevance to the question of, so if that's the origin of the world we're in, and we have this dual nature, what are we supposed to do? He asks, quote, those who lack knowledge, hoi agnontes, those without news, what great wrong have they done, I asked, that they should be deprived of immortality? End of quote. So now we're getting into ethics, spiritual practice, the course of action recommended for the hermetic elite. Poimandre says, Hermes, you haven't been listening. Didn't I tell you to use your news? Noain, to noetize? Hermes says, I am using it, and I remember, and I give thanks. So Poimandre says, so tell me then, why those who are in death deserve death? And now Hermes answers. Notice how Hermes is now in a position to be giving instructions back to the teacher. So he's clearly progressing in his instruction in the wisdom, right? Poimandris is asking him for the answer, and he's saying, well, this is the answer, and Poimandris says, correct. He's got something out of these visionary experiences. And we also note that having entered the dialogic back-and-forth framework again, so we're out of vision territory and back into, well, we're still in a vision because he's still talking to the noose, but we're out of that particular set of visions where the, the sort of cosmogony of the universe was set out. Hermes is once again speaking in the first person. He's saying, I... So you can see how this would perhaps facilitate in a reader who is a hermetist identification of the reader with Hermes, right? So he, the reader too, has learned from the vision. So death comes, he tells us, from the original watery darkness, which is part of our nature. Then Poimandre says, quote, Truly you have understood, enoisas, you have had noesis. But why is it that, quote, he who has understood himself advances toward God, as God's discourse has it. So, Poimandris is now quoting the discourse, the Logos of God. Now, Copenhaver is translating this as advances towards God, but the text actually reads advances towards himself, a sauton. So, this could refer to God himself, the noose, or to the advancer himself, the one who has self-knowledge, the text is very ambiguous here, and we should not ignore the possibility that this is an artful ambiguity that is meant to be 
read both ways at the same time. Since, as we shall now see, the noose is the true self of the hermitist, of the human being, in the, in the final analysis. At any rate, it's clear that this noetic activity in the human is what gives immortality. And specifically, it takes the form of self-noesis or self-knowledge, although I don't think knowledge is a good translation. Some kind of unmediated encounter with the true noetic self is the implication here. That's what brings you immortality. Note, too, that Poimandre seems to be quoting here from some other scriptural source, God's Logos. We have no idea what this refers to, as far as I'm aware, but it does seem to be a reference either to another holy text, or perhaps it's a reference to kind of saying that's current among the Hermetic audience. Hermes's answer to Poimandre's question as to why is it that he is, who has understood himself advances toward God, or toward himself, is that the nature of noose is life and light, and knowledge of this fact allows the human to advance to life. Hermes then quotes the Holy Logos again in slightly different form, saying, quote, For God says, let the person who is mindful, and noose, who has noose, recognize himself. All people have noose, do they not? End of quote. Poimandre says, no, I am present to the pious, the Eusé base. He then lists a number of vicious types of people to whom he is not present, so not everyone has noose, the evil and the greedy and so on. In fact, he lists seven vicious types of people, or seven vices here, which probably has an astral significance, as we shall see. These people are under the influence of torturing demons, daimones, and they are burning in the unquenchable fire of their own appetites. So, we are definitely in the territory of asceticism here. This is something we see in many Hermetica. You need to stop being a slave to your appetites and vices. So that's the kind of practical side of it. But I also think this daimonic stuff in the text is really quite literal. These vices that we have as humans attached to the soul when it descended into the cosmos. So each planet giving a vice, or perhaps attached to the anthropos when he was getting the um, nature of each of the planets at, right at the beginning of the whole human experiment, as you'll recall. We have testimony to this idea from other Hermetica. We also see it in uh, Numenius of Apamea, perhaps. We see it in the Pistis Sophia and in many so-called Gnostic texts. This idea that the soul incoming into the earth gains sort of accretions from the planets, which are very negative, is not uncommon in a certain sort of religious writing from late antiquity. And this does seem to be not a particularly Egyptian idea, per se, but rather an idea that's pretty common among philosophers who take astrology on board. We'll see it again in Macrobius in the 5th century in the podcast. So when the Anthropos was given the nature of each of the governors, it was in a fairly optimistic vein. But now we are in more kind of trapped by fate and astral determinism territory in the text. So Hermes now asks a crucial question, but tell me again, Father, about the way up, the anodos. How does it work exactly? And this brings us to our spiritual practices in a very explicit way. The next section is really important, so let's read it through, even though this is already a rather long episode. Quote, To this, Poimandre said, First, in releasing the material body, you give the body itself over to alteration and the form that you used to have vanishes. To the daimon, you give over your temperament, now inactive. That's ethos, temperament. The, the, this might even mean something like personality, to be honest. 
the body's senses rise up and flow back to their particular sources, becoming separate parts and mingling again with the energies, and feeling and longing go on toward irrational nature. End of that bit of the quote. So first of all, you separate yourself from the sensible world, and the senses and that your ethos, your individual human characteristics, your habits and stuff, they sort of dissolve back into different parts of the cosmos. Note that in releasing the material body, you give the body itself over to alteration, and the form that you used to have vanishes. When we look at Corpus Hermeticum 13 and discuss divinization, this passage will be very significant, because it looks as though the Hermetist is actually acquiring a new immortal body. You can't see it, because it's not susceptible to being seen by the physical senses. He looks the same as he always did, but his actual physical form has been transformed into something new, and it's immortal. So in this text, we're not just leaving the body behind and sort of flying away from it, and then it kind of dies or rots or evaporates or something. It is actually being transformed and goes on being a body, but now it's no longer subject to fate or death. This is a very interesting and weird idea, and we shall be returning to it. So here we go. The ascending human is stripping off cosmic influences, each at their appropriate planetary juncture, becoming less and less cosmic and more purely noetic as he goes along. So we'll read more of the translation here. Quote, Thence the human being rushes up through the cosmic framework at the first zone, surrendering the, the energy of increase and decrease, at the second, evil mach machination, a device now inactive, at the third, the illusion of longing, now inactive, at the fourth, the ruler's arrogance, now freed of excess, at the fifth, unholy presumption and daring recklessness, at the sixth, the evil impulses that come from wealth, now inactive, and at the seventh zone, the deceit that lies in ambush. So there you go, seven planets, seven nasty things corresponding to each planet. I was going to give my idea of what the exact planetary ordering is here, but um, I'm not entirely sure I'm right about it, so I won't do it. There were many, many different orderings of the planets current in the kind of literature that attaches a sort of characteristic um, ethos to each planet, and I don't want to get it wrong, so I'm just going to let the listener fill in the gaps for each of those zones. Continuing with our quote, and then stripped of the effects of the cosmic framework, the human enters the region of the Ogdoad. He has his own proper power, and along with the blessed, he hymns the Father. Those present there rejoice together in his presence, and having become like his companions, he also hears certain powers that exist beyond the Ogdoadic region and hymn God with sweet voice. They rise up to the Father in order and surrender themselves to the powers, and having become powers, they enter into God. This is the final good for those who have received knowledge, to be made God. End of quote. Woo! So God not only dwells beyond the Ogdoad, but he's not alone there. There are other powers there with him. Perhaps this is a kind of celestial court type setup, familiar from Jewish apocalyptic or perhaps it's something else. But anyway, there's these other entities there worshiping God and sort of moving towards him and even entering into him. And the seeker can seemingly, and it's a bit ambiguous here, but I think these, these encounters with the highest narratives often are a bit ambiguous, can pass over beyond the Ogdoad into the Ennead 
and enter into God, can become one of the divine powers and enter into the divine noose himself. Poimandres then gives a final instruction. Get on with it, spread the word. Quote, Why do you still delay? Having learned all this, should you not become guide to the worthy, so that through you the human race might be saved by God? End of quote. So Hermes does. He goes out into the world and preaches to mankind. So the visionary passage is over, and now we're in the final section. He's going around telling everyone that they are asleep and drunk, and they need to wake up to their true noetic nature. Some eagerly hear this message and become Hermes' disciples, while others mock him and follow the path of death. After this account of Hermes' sort of mission, proselytizing mission, we then get a hymn to the noose, and we shall have to skip this hymn, uh, because time here in the death-enthralled cosmos is running on. But we cannot skip the final lines of the work. Hermes finishes as follows. Now this is him addressing the Poimandres. You whom we address in silence, the unspeakable, aneklalite, the unsayable, arrete, accept pure speech offerings from a heart and soul that reach up to you. Grant my request not to fail in the knowledge, gnosis, that benefits our essence. Give me power, and with this gift I shall enlighten those who are in ignorance, brothers of my race, but your sons. Thus I believe and I bear witness. I advance to life and light. Blessed are you, Father. He who is your man wishes to join you in the work of sanctification since you have provided him all authority. End of quote. So, in this episode, we have tried to introduce the Poimandres. We've had to leave a lot out, of course. We highly recommend people go find themselves an edition of Nocfestugier or of Copenhaver and read the text for themselves. It is incredibly interesting and has incredible resonances with a whole lot of other esoteric religious currents of the time, if by the time we mean sometime in the Roman Empire of the first three centuries. It might be that we are looking at a text which has a much longer history, or at least layers, elements in it from a much longer history. But for my money, the Poimandris as we have it is probably late antique or at least Roman period rather than Hellenistic. That's just my opinion. Stay tuned for more Hermetica, which will be brought into dialogue with this one. But before we get to those, I think some further reflection on the Poimandris would be a good idea. So join us and Professor Wouter Hanegraaf for that in the next episode as we discuss his reading of this amazing text. And until then, be like the unspeakable, ineffable one who is addressed through silence and stay esoteric. <laughs> <laughs>